Ladies and gentlemen, a warm welcome to PLC Sydney. My name's Paul Burgess and I have the honour of being the principal of PLC Sydney. Welcome to the Pamela Nutt Address for 2023. Let me explain to you what the Pamela Nutt Address is and why I think we're in for a treat tonight, and then I'll hand over to Pamela in order to introduce our guest. The Pamela Nutt Address has been going since 2011, and the idea is that we would take God, or our faith, in one hand, and one of the disciplines of the school in the other, and ask questions about it. And these lectures have been going for students, for staff, across those years, and actually they build a strong culture in the school over time, accumulatively, of, being, of the types of questions we're going to ask and the intellectual sea in which we swim. So in this auditorium today, first of all, we were honoured to hear from David Bentley Hart as a staff. And in the early morning, the staff all came together for breakfast before school started in order to be involved in a conversation. And actually it was a very rich one, and David certainly woke everybody up, stimulated them very much. Then we had year seven to nine. Now I have to say, David, I confess, I think I said it to you at the point, how are we going to manage with year seven to nine? We had to first of all take out all of the references to just about everybody in history, uh, because even though they're very bright and able students, their understanding of the full scope of history isn't the same as an adult. Um, but actually, I think we managed that very well with lots of narrative and uh, heard lots of very good reports. And then years 10 to 12 came in, and. Uh, we lifted the level a bit, and uh, David was able to communicate very effectively with them. And then tonight, we've had interviews today, but tonight is the formal, actual Pamela Nutt address. That's open. We have this every year. We've had John Lennox speak about God and mathematics, Amy or Ewing speak about God and girls, Catherine Hamlin speak about God and service. So that's the spirit in which we engage tonight. Now, over lunch today with the executive, I found out that David speaks not only English, but French, Portuguese, Spanish, or speaks or reads, and or reads, German, I'm sorry to embarrass you, I hope not, Russian, Sanskrit, Chinese, Japanese, reads the Bible in original Hebrew and Greek, and not in English, but does love uh, 16th and 17th century English in particular, and much, much more. I think you speak Cheyenne as well. A little, a little bit, a little bit. But, um, but so, it has been wonderful to have David in the school because of the intellectual capacity which he brings and the inspiration which that is. I'm now going to ask uh, Pam herself to come forward and to do the formal introduction of David. Would you welcome Pamela Nutt, please? I should say who Pam is. Pam was the head of English at PLC Sydney and was also the chaplain at certain points. So she carried a discipline and her faith in two hands. And it's in honour of her 40 years service at PLC Sydney, after which this address is named. Thank you, Pamela. Good evening, Dr Burgess, members of the PLC community and guests. And particularly, I greet Professor David Bentley Hart and welcome him to Australia and to PLC Sydney. He is an acclaimed scholar who brings a depth of knowledge and questioning world experience uh, in a world that, ex that expects that uh, violence and doubt are norms. He studied at the University of Maryland, Cambridge University, and the University of Virginia. Learn from this that deep knowledge is not acquired overnight. He has taught at the University of Virginia, 
the University of St. Thomas, and uh, learned from this that, uh, and also Duke Divinity School and Loyola College Baltimore, learned from this that his life has been committed to teaching and therefore to continued learning. He belongs to the Eastern Orthodox tradition, tradition of the Christian faith. Learn from this that faith, experience, a recognition of the mystical and learning are interconnected. This evening, I believe that you will be challenged to consider new ways of thinking, neither a simple nor an easy matter. Sometimes the effect of this is immediate, but sometimes it takes a lifetime of learning and experience to absorb. You do not come to this moment unprepared. Professor Bentley Hart's talk today, to th this evening, will examine ideas of beauty, ideas about the infinite, and where that places each one of us. Consider beauty. You have already a wide range of ideas about this. We Australians joyfully proclaimed, you beaut, whenever the Matildas won. Is beauty then something that merely makes us feel good in the moment, soon to be a distant memory? I will not surprise you, perhaps, if I allow Jane Austen to answer this. How does Elizabeth Bennet reflect on the beauty that is not confined to a particular moment? Is it to be found in the balance, the proportion, the taste, the harmony of Pemberley, where such qualities reflect a social order that was believed to be of the benefit of all? Or is it to be found when Elizabeth is awed by a landscape? What are men to rocks and mountains? Austen recognises the conflict between values that promote social harmony and a particular kind of order, and those that promote imagination, individual experience, and searching. A response to beauty seems to be the best metaphor to represent this conflict. John Keats, in writing about the mysteries embodied in an ancient piece of pottery, asserted, beauty is truth, truth beauty. We still debate what he meant by that. More directly, Gerard Manley Hopkins saw beauty in the ordinariness of life. Praise be to God for dappled things, was his song. But also, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. He delighted to consider the beauty of the infinite. Dorothea McKellar writes of her love of a sunburned country with its droughts and flooding rains. We know that when McKellar identifies Australia's beauty and her terror, we too acknowledge the shared majesty of this wonderful land. When she was a very young child, Judith Wright, Australia's greatest poet, I believe, wrote from her own experience a poem titled 
the bushfire. Higher and higher flickers the fire, and the flame shoots up in a red-gold spire, beauty and terror indeed. So, in many ways, we have begun to think about how David Bentley Hart will challenge us. Please join me in welcoming him to PLC Sydney. We look forward to insights to be gained and to be appreciated over a lifetime of learning. Hello. Um, thank you for that. Uh, it's, 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 it's a great honor to be here. N needless to say, it's been a great joy to meet uh, Pamela Nutt. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, from whom cometh the eponym of this lecture. And I, uh, I, I've been enjoying Australia so much for the past two weeks that I'd almost forgotten I was supposed to be here tonight. Came to me as quite a shock when, I, when my host said, well, you know, you've actually got to go and, and do things on Monday to, to justify your journey. But I, I look forward to it. Uh, I'm going to begin in a way that I hadn't intended to begin, but Paul Burgess, in a sense, accidentally challenged me to this over lunch when he noted that I uh, had uh, tossed in a few lines of French verse at the last talk he'd heard. He, he, he uh, suggested that I perhaps like to um, uh, speak in other languages, to speak in tongues, in fact, when delivering uh, a lecture. So let me, let me begin with a poem and, and understand that I have a kind of superstition about poems. I believe one always has to read them in the original before rendering them into anything else because there's a kind of manner, in the, if they're good poems. Um, and this is one m many of us probably already know. Wir konnten nicht sein, unerhörtes Haupt, darin die Augen reiften aber. Sein Tor so glut, noch wie ein Kandelaber, in dem sein Schauen nur zurückgeschraubt, sich hält und glänzt. Sonst könnte nicht der Brug der Brust dich blenden und im leisen Drehen, der Lenden könnte nicht ein Lächeln gehen zu jener Mitte, die die Zeugung trug. Sonst stunde dieser Stein entstellt und kurz, unter der Schultern durchsichtig und sturz und flimmerte nicht so wie Raubtierfälle und breche nicht aus allen seinen Rändern aus wie ein Stern. Denn da ist keine Stelle, die dich nicht sieht. Du musst dein Leben ändern. Um, well, some of you, I think, will probably recognize that as the, the Akaeche Torso Apollos by, by Aina Maria Rilke from the Neue Gedichte, the ancient, the archaic torso of Apollo, which I, I render, we never knew his stupendous head, wherein the apple of the eye grew ripe, but still his torso glows like a candelabra in which his gaze now turned down still abides and gleams. Else could not the 
bow of the breast dazzle you in the slight twisting of the loin. A smile could not extend to that midpoint that bore the power of begetting. Else, this stone would be disfigured and thwarted below the shoulder's transparent plunge and would not glisten so like the fur of a beast of prey, nor erupt out of all of its contours so like a star. For there is no place there that does not see you. You must change your life. What I've always found so captivatingly strange about that poem is that while it concerns judgment and beauty, the former judgment, that is, is not a critical verdict, verdict that we pass on the object of our attention, nor is the latter quality imposed on that object by us and our tastes and sensibilities. Rather, the beauty that shines out of the archaic torso is an objective reality that overwhelms us with its, um, well, to use a phrase from another of uh, Rilke's poems, it's stärkeres Dasein, it's stronger being. We do not judge the beautiful, it judges us, and its judgment is a moral one. You see that especially in that final oracular imperative, you must change your life, du musst dein Leben ändern. It's certainly the poem's most mysterious phrase and yet somehow also the most immediately comprehensible. At least I'm fairly sure that it describes something all of us have experienced, even if only fleetingly, in moments of un unanticipated grace an almost numinous instant of awareness that suddenly seizes us when we're in the presence of a truly inspired work of artistic imagination, but that practically none of us knows how to translate into words. Certainly I know I've felt it and have heard others attest to it, however imprecisely, but just because of this ineffability, it's something that tends to fade fairly quickly from memory, or at least from present consciousness. So long as it lasts, it addresses us both as a kind of invitation and a kind of accusation. In that ephemeral instant in which we become all at once acutely conscious of the enigma in any truly prodigious work of art, it's a needless inevitability, so to speak. Uh, words are sort of feeble here, we're also apprised of everything trivial and unfinished and thoughtless in ourselves, everything so ordinary that the only plausible explanation for it must be spiritual sloth on our parts. We're always forgetful of the mystery of being, so to speak, of the sheer wonder of the world's existence and forgetful, therefore, also of the frightful dereliction of squandering the time set before us. We're ungrateful because we're oblivious to something that has been given to us freely and culpable then because every gift is an obligation. I'm not making these as absolute pronouncements, I'm just interpreting the poem. And so in the moment when beauty finds us and its fortuity intimates to us something like the greater mystery of the fortuity of being itself, we find ourselves under a verdict and under an injunction you must change your life. We're made aware of what we are and what we should be as well as the distance between the two. I've called this talk beauty being an kenosis, or as one often hears it, mispronounced kenosis. 
it's a reflection not only on beauty, but on beauty specifically as inflected through a Christian sensibility. There's an old debate among Thomists as to whether Thomas thought that beauty, Paul Crutudo or the beautiful Pulchrum, possessed the characteristics necessary for it to be considered a true transcendental, that is, a perfection in which all existing things participate in some degree or other, like the good and the true and being itself, as a necessary condition of their very existence and a property that in its infinite and absolute reality is convertible with all other transcendentals and may properly then be regarded as one of the names of God. Now, for me, that's a, a question of only academic interest. I'm not a Thomist. Uh, I, I do believe it's a transcendental, the beautiful. I mention this only because it touches upon the larger question of what is uniquely transcendental in the experience of the beauty. Uh, the traditional definition of the beautiful that Thomas repeated in its best remembered form could be scarcely more elegantly or infuriatingly terse. Id quod visum placet, that which being seen gives pleasure. Or in Thomas's own actual words, pulcra enim dicunta quae visa placent. Those things are called beautiful that on being seen please. A rather bland and defective formulation and one that immediately raises the question of whether the beautiful here uh, in the platonic sense of tokalon, the intrinsically desirable as such, is even what's at issue. This is not simply because the formula obviously limits the words meaning to visual experience. By analogy, it's a definition that can be expanded to the other senses and perhaps certain supersensuous dimensions of experience so that we could speak of imaginative or conceptual beauty or the loveliness of the plot of the story or even of an exquisite idea. Moreover, the Thomistic definition contains profound and indispensable insight. That is, the beautiful is something that pleases simply by virtue of being seen or heard or felt or thought or otherwise intuited and for no other reason than that. Its rationale lies within itself. The apprehension of the beautiful is characterized by simplicity and immediacy. But this, by this, I don't mean instantaneity because some things require time to be appreciated fully, but only that in any aesthetic experience there's no other mediating concern that determines one's judgment of a thing's beauty or deformity. It's simply stated an experience of disinterested pleasure, using that word in the vaguest possible sense. Even when the occasion of the experience of beauty is at the same time an object of interested desire, say uh, an erotic fascination with another's loveliness, it's never impossible in principle to distinguish, even if in practice it's impossible to separate, the recognition of beauty from the desire for what one admires. Um, and of course, even erotic desire is in a sense disinterested in a way that say desire for money is not. But even an object desired for its monetary worth can in a distinct and immediate way be desired also for the satisfaction it affords a purely 
rational appetite for beauty. But what does this really mean? Surely the essential question is not whether the beautiful pleases, but why it pleases and why in so distinctive a fashion. What is it that's intrinsically pleasing about, uh, about it if what it provides cannot be reduced to profit, personal aggrandizement, or sensual gratification? This is where left to itself a definition like Thomas's begins to dissolve into banality. If anything, it's enlightening only because it's so manifestly inadequate. In the same article in which Thomas offers his definition of the beautiful, he goes on to enumerate the proper constituents of beautiful things. He says, they are. And he says this with that wonderfully unironic un and bland precision uh, typical of his genius. Three in number, integrity, right proportionality, and brilliancy, brightness. That is, firstly, a thing's beauty is determined to the degree that it's complete, not lacking in any essential feature, and in no way disfigured by privation or distortion. A missing eye or damaged lip detracts from the beauty of a face. A crack deforms the surface of a lovely vase. An off-key note diminishes a bel canto aria. Not his examples, obviously. Secondly, all the parts of a beautiful object must be in pleasing proportion to one another. Nothing could be in either, should be either excessive or insufficient. All parts must be arranged harmoniously and in attractive balance. And thirdly, the beautiful thing must shine, must be radiant in a quite concretely physical way. It must be clear, distinct, splendid, lustrous, brightly colored. In fact, one Thomist of my acquaintance often insists with that fine and cavalier indifference to actual human experience at which Thomists so often excel, that there is no such thing as a truly beautiful day without clear skies, golden sunlight, brilliant hues, and so forth. So if you think you have found gray days of silver rain and drifting mists beautiful, you're simply in error. <laughs> That's not what Thomas said. Well, the, all of this really is to confuse, and, and I, I don't blame Thomas, it's just this is, for him, the pulchrum was really just a question of ornament. It's, it's become detached from the platonic language of beauty altogether at this point. This confuses the beautiful with the pretty, the delightful with the merely obliging, enchantment with diversion. Yes, we take pleasure in color, integrity, harmony, radiance, and so on, and yet we also frequently find ourselves stirred and moved and delighted by objects whose sensible appearance or tones or other qualities violate all these canons of aesthetic value and that somehow shine with a fuller beauty as a result. Conversely, many objects that possess all these ideal features often bore us or even appall us with their banality. At times, the obscure enchants us and the lucid leaves us untouched. Plangent dissonances can awaken our imaginations far more delightful than simple harmonies that often seem insipid. A face almost wholly devoid of conventionally pleasing features can seem unutterably beautiful to us in its very disproportion, while the most exquisite profile can merely charm us. Rembrandt's brooding shadows are beautiful, while Thomas Kincaid's bizarre phosphorescences are repellent. If you know who he is, I pity you. In America, you can't escape him. Whatever the beautiful is, it's not simply harmony or symmetry or consonance or, or donance or brightness, all of which can become anodyne or vacuous of themselves. 
The beautiful can be encountered, sometimes shatteringly, precisely where all these things are largely absent. Beauty is something other than the visible or audible or conceptual agreement of parts, and the experience of beauty can never be intelligibly reduced without significant unexplained remainder to any set of visible or audible material constituents. It's something mysterious and prodigal, often unanticipated, even capricious. We can find ourselves suddenly amazed by some strange and undefinable glory in a barren field or an urban ruin or the splendid disarray of a storm-wracked forest, and so on. This is one reason for viewing accounts of beauty produced by evolutionary psychology with extreme suspicion. This is one of the popular approaches of reduction of the aesthetic. The best attempt at this by the late Dennis Dutton, a book called The Art Instinct, tries to ground the enjoyment of art in sexual selection, in the Darwinian mechanism of sexual selection, which requires Dutton to ground the experience of beauty in the material conditions of affective pleasure. For instance, he begins his argument by pointing out that the most popular sorts of photographs in calendars, and that being the example he starts with, we should be suspicious from there, <laughs> are of landscapes that supposedly carry us back to our remote evolutionary beginnings and the sort of landscapes our phylogenic forebears would have sought out, green and moist and fruitful. And yet aesthetic experience is not that, surely. We may enjoy pictures of certain scenes that are agreeable to us at a purely physiological level of suggestiveness, but what we find beautiful is a rule almost entirely unrelated to material conditions of that kind. The form of representation often fascinates us far more than the objects represented. A magnificent photograph of an uninhabitable desert can delight us in ways that a competent but uninspired photograph of a blue lake amid emerald tussocks and flowered rills cannot. There's a kind of transfinite quality of the beautiful, a sort of gracious ubiquity that is, it can appear anywhere, a generous absolution from the material conditions of its occasion. Um, I take a page here, and just a page, from, from Martin Heidegger, uh, whom I always try to treat judiciously. You know, because he was a Nazi. Yeah. That goes on your permanent record, as they say in, in American schools. It's the closing lines of his essay, The Origin of the Work of Art, where he assimilates the event of beauty, and that's what's important, to the event of truth event. And for him, the event of truth is simply the coming to appearance, the manifestation of that which is made present in the purest immediacy of its being. He accepts the classical intuition that beauty is conceptually inseparable from static concepts as form and image, morphia and ethos, but only insofar as he can reduce these terms to ancient names. He, this is something he liked to do, the sort of mystical etymology, uh, to ancient names for the advent of being within the world of finite causes. For him, beauty is to be understood as a way in which the difference between being and beings is made manifest. I, the reason I find this suggestive is, I mean, I would go so far, it's precisely that word event. 
I would go so far as to say that beauty, inseparable as it is from form, is not form. I would even say that beauty is not that which appears and indeed does not itself appear as an object of reflection, but is instead the appearing of what appears in a specific way. If that seems coyly nebulous, good. Uh, but, but I think it's a phenomenological truth that we can confirm from our own experience. Hmm. I wonder how that happens. Uh, when we encounter the beautiful, <laughs> what is it that compels us? What is it that draws us in and awakens us to a splendor beyond our particular interests and desires and predilections? In, uh, I think the examples I used in today's session, in a, in a canvas by Chardin or Coro or a Bach violin partita, number two especially. Not simply this or that aspect of its composition or its neurological effect or its clarity or vividness or suggestive associations and so on, not even the virtuosity of its execution. Rather, it's all these things experienced as sheer fortuity, as sheer grace. I may be speaking of something that's a little elusive of definition, but it seems clear to me that the special delight experienced in the encounter with beauty necessarily involves an irreducible sense of the sheer unnecessary thereness, so to speak, of a thing, the simple gratuity with which it shows itself or better gives itself with no rationale other than itself. It's a grace to which our disinterested appreciation corresponds, and so we see it here as we would not elsewhere. Though in a sense this grace is present in all things, the account of the experience of the beautiful gives us an, a privileged access, a privileged recognition of what it is. Other than this, the most perfectly executed work of art would be only a display of proficiency, of pure technique. What transforms the merely accomplished into the revelatory is this invisible nimbus of utter gratuity. Rather than commanding our attention with the force of necessity or oppressing us with the triteness of something inevitable or recommending itself to us by its utility, the beautiful presents itself as an entirely unwarranted, unnecessary, and yet perfectly fitting gift. Beauty, as opposed to mere strikingness, is an event or even eventuality as such. It's the movement of a gratuitous disclosure of something always otherwise a little bit too hidden, which need not reveal itself or give itself. In that moment, we're granted our most acute, lucid, and splendid encounter with the difference of being from beings, of existence from the things of the world. It gives us that most perfect experience of existential wonder, the thapmazin, the Greek of Platonic, uh, of, uh, Platonic or Aristotelian tradition, the wonder that is the beginning of all speculative wisdom, an amazement that lies just below the surface of our everyday consciousness. But, but the beauty stirs us from our habitual forgetfulness of this wonder. It grants us, again, that privileged awakening from our 
fallenness in ordinary awareness, reminding us that the fullness of being, which far exceeds the moment of its disclosure, graciously condescends to show itself again and again in a finite event, in a mere instance. And in this experience, we're given a, a glimpse, again, with a feeling of wonder that I like to think restores us momentarily to something like the innocence of childhood, of being's kenesis in being, that is, its self-outpouring, that inexhaustible source that pours itself out in the, graceless, in the graceful <laughs> needlessness of creation. Beauty shines out in the midst of being as the sign and gift and ever-renewed revelation of what transcends discrete things, exciting in us an eros for the source of all splendor and all delight, if, that is, we have ears to hear and eyes to see. Uh, by this point, it might be clear that I'm working within a very classical discourse of the beautiful. Um, the relation between the infinite and the finite, or the absolute and the contingent, or beauty in itself and the beautiful here below can be uh, construed in a great number of ways, however. Typically, throughout the history of Western metaphysics, it's proved difficult to interpret the relation in a way that doesn't presume some initial moment of alienation or tragic loss, um, a dialectical struggle between ideal forms and the intractability of the material realm or the inviolable limits of finitude. Uh, this is true, at least practically, of every native idealism of Western philosophical history, I mean, even from Plato onward. No true idealism, properly speaking, thinks of the relation in a purely dualistic way, but even the, the classical uh, idealisms always leave a kind of tragic remainder behind in their, their account of the beautiful there below, there above, and its presence here below something unaccounted for and unredeemed. Uh, that is, even Plato states that to show itself in the world of doxa, of opinion or mere appearance, divine or ideal beauty must suffer some sort of negation, some sort of violence, a diminishment. It becomes a shadow of itself, or even a shadow of a shadow in the reproduc reproduction of beauty in works of art. Manifestation is always alienation in this world. The beautiful is then a haunting reminder of something lost and a foretaste of what is to be found beyond the tragic limits of this world. And so it can point only up and away, away from the things of earth. So this is why in the title of this paper I use the Christian word kenesis, distinctively Christian word. It's not really a philosophical term in ancient Greek. Uh, for the Christian story is somewhat different here. It's one in which the tragedies of finitude belong to a history of alienation, but not as the result of some sort of metaphysical necessity. Rather, the infinite shows itself in the finite entirely in the form of a free and unforced gift, one that requires no estrangement of the divine from the divine nature, but that instead is a perfect and gracious expression of that nature, for God always already is an infinite act of self-outpouring charity, the beauty that is also 
self-donating love. At least, this seems to me the obvious metaphysical implication of the way in which Nicene theology fundamentally altered the, the conceptual structure of the ancient world's understanding of transcendence. The doctrinal determinations of the fourth century and their theological uh, ramifications rendered many established metaphysical premises upon which Christians had long presumed, in fact, uh, being law, you know, good Hellenes, in order to understand the relation between the God and the world increasingly untenable. In one time it has seemed natural for many Christian thinkers to imagine God in the world as somehow part of a single ontic continuum with the inaccessible Father mediated to the world below through the agencies, the subalternate agencies of the Logos and the Spirit. This is, for those of you who know doctrinal history, this would be Alexandrian, what used to be called subordinationism. In such a scheme, of course, there is a tragic interval between God and world. God in himself is the eternally inexpressive fullness of light, Otheos, the unseen father, who can put forth only a derivative and reduced manifestation of his power in the Son and spirit in order to interact with creation. But with the definition that we came at uh, Nicaea of the Son and then the Spirit afterwards as co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, this metaphysical economy had been abandoned. And the new theological uses had their necessary philosophical grammar demanded a revision of the older Logos metaphysics at the most radical of, of levels. For not only is the Logos of Nicaea the Son, not a lesser manifestation of a God beyond manifestation, but in fact the eternal reality whereby God is the God he is. God is always already manifestation. Nothing, uh, how can I put it? God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Nothing in the Father exceeds who the Son and Spirit are, according to this new fourth century understanding of the Trinity. In that perfect life of infinite love, nothing remains unexpressed. The Son is the eternal and infinite icon of the Father, perfectly known and loved and illumined in the infinite glory of the Spirit. It's within this understanding of the divine nature then that the Christian theology must make sense of a second outpouring of God, the free, gracious, unnecessary, but eternally fitting act of creation. For the gift of creation occurs within the mystery of that infinite act of love and knowledge as a further expression of its beauty brought forth, not from some limited medium, but purely from nothingness, purely as grace, purely as a gift of the infinite within the finite. The beauty of God in creation isn't simply impressed upon some external and unformed substrate that requires a reduction of the unseen transcendent beauty to the distorting constraints of the finite. This was the older prejudice. Rather, divine beauty is that transcendent truth of beauty and of being in which creation graciously participates and which creation discloses again and again as pure gratuity. Now, why am I making all these points? Uh, I'm trying to get around to, to what is unique in the Christian sense of the beautiful. 
It's that the same interval of grace is repeated and reaches its consummation in the incarnate person of Christ. In him, one sees the difference between the divine and the human as an infinite qualitative distance precisely because there's no conflict or rivalry between Christ's divinity and humanity. Excuse me. The latter participates in the former so naturally that the one person of the Son can be both fully divine and fully human at once. If the difference between God and humanity were merely a quantifiable difference between extrinsically related things, the incarnation would be a real change in both natures or an amalgamation or a synthesis. But then Christ would not be the God-man, but a kind of monstrosity, a hybrid of natures that in themselves would remain opposed and unreconciled. But because the difference between the divine and the human really is an infinite qualitative difference, the union between the human and divine in Christ involves no contradiction, no alienation, no change. Because, how can I put it, in this one person, Jesus of Nazareth, in the Christian imagination, who is both God and a man, there is no diminishment of the divinity or a violation of the integrity of the humanity in that union. In Christ, one supposedly glimpses at once both the perfect ontological interval of divine transcendence, but also the perfect fittingness of the divine image to its archetype. For the perfect man is also God of God, not a fabulous demigod, but human in the fullest sense, because divine in the fullest sense. The beauty of the historical incarnate Jesus of Nazareth perfectly reflects and discloses within the fallenness of time the true beauty of his father. To see him is to have seen the father, supposedly. To see him with the eyes of faith is to see within his very humanity the true beauty of the infinite God. What does this mean, though? Um, it means that according to the Christian understanding of, of the beautiful, we are enjoined to see the divine radiance, the divine loveliness in those very regions of reality from which a conventional scale of appreciation of the pleasurable would seem to exclude it. The form of Christ inhabits at once a province of shadows and a realm of glorious light. He's at once, uh, well, to use uh, the language of Bart, nocturnally and diurnally beautiful. His is a way simultaneously of abasement and of exaltation. And these two ways are one. That's the point that has to be understood, not dialectically counterposed moments within an, a paradox, not a before and an after. Not, it, it's not the case that Jesus is, that the, that the divine son is hidden in the form of the slave. It's a venturing forth from and return to the Father, the incarnation that is, that is one motion, one life, one dramatic action that overcomes the fallen world's defining horizon, which is death, not through reconciliation with the limits it marks, but through an infinite act of kenesis and glorification that transgresses it, passes it by as though it were nothing. And all Trinitarian theology depends upon the belief that this kenesis of Christ is not a moment of separation, a descent from some otherworldly pleroma into a condition of estrangement,
but an actual manifestation of the one eternal act by which God is God. The relationship between the form of God and the form of the slave, which are counterposed, if you recall, in the Philippians hymn, is not one of dissemblance, but of an ever deeper revelation of the depths of the divine beauty. The story of the Son's incarnation, life, death, and resurrection isn't the story of a divine masquerade, of a king who goes forth in self-divestment simply to return to the estate he has abandoned, like uh, the protagonist in the Gnostic Song of the Pearl, uh, or Henry V going out among the tents at night, perhaps, losing himself in the far country and then finding his true self again only in his return to his distant demean. The son goes forth because going forth is always already who he is as God, because all wealth and all poverty are already encompassed in his eternal life of receiving and pouring out his infinitely accomplished bliss and love. He is the God he is in his very divestment and in his glory, both at once as the same thing inseparably. So, for instance, you see in the Gospel of John, Christ's crucifixion is also already his glorification. They're one and the same thing. It is in being lifted up on the cross that he draws the world to himself. Even in Christ's dereliction, God's infinity is made manifest in the agony of Gethsemane and going into the region of death. Christ shows that the divine infinity surpasses these separations, that the divine beauty suffuses all these distances and the resurrection shows that the sun traverses the infinite as an infinite gift, never ceasing to be the true form of God. The greater the freedom of the sun's journey into this world, then the more profound the difference spanned, the farther the distance traversed, the more surely is God God. God's powers manifest most profoundly in the sun's kenosis because God's power is the infinite peace of an eternal venture of love. It's uh, what uh, the Pseudo Dionysius calls the divine ecstasy, whose fullness the, the, is literally God's ecstasy beyond the divine, because God's power is the infinite peace of an eternal venture of love. Thus, the divi this divine beauty has no proper place at all. It belongs to no hierarchy of conventional aesthetic values. I mean, I do think this is the, the Christian revolution in Western aesthetics. A purely idealist metaphysics of the beautiful can point in only one direction, and this is a good thing, generally, but it points away from the world towards the simple and transcendent source of all beauty. But for Christian thought, then, there's another side to this. Because of its Trinitarian presence, Christian thought has to follow the path of beauty not only upward and away, but downward and in, into the world, even into states of utter privation, even into states of deformity that still cannot conquer the radiant form of God as self-outpouring love. Christian thought doesn't simply ascend to the beauty, but finds the beauty, the, the beautiful, in the entire scope of the divine life, even as it proceeds downward into utter inanition and poverty and enslavement. God ventures even into the godless, and still God's beauty is there, offered as gift, delight, and love. 
This, I think, is the most radical and precious gift that Christian aesthetics makes to our consciousness of, of the beautiful. The eye of charity, which relentlessly but joyously finds beauty even where we should not expect it, even among the despised and the rejected, this vision of love that invites and compels us to find the whole glory of being in the brokenness and humility of a crucified slave. This is a new depth of vision, a new apprehension of the inexhaustible scope of divine glory, this perfect unity of kenesis and pleurosis, self-outpouring and fulfillment, consummate weakness as omnipotence. From a Christian perspective, the event of the beautiful is an experience, I would say, then, even if only fleetingly, of this love that is forever poured out in all that leads and leads back again to the inexhaustible wellspring of love. It's a way of seeing that's finally possible, perhaps only for the saint, who may be the truest of true esthetes, the truest connoisseur of eternal beauty in its infinite gratuity and inexhaustible generosity. It's an understanding of beauty and a cultivation of vision that transforms all of reality into icons of the transcendent, windows into the eternal, even in places where we think those windows entirely darkened. Most of us enjoy such a vision only in fugitive glimpses. Our spiritual senses are neither that refined nor that sensitive. We must rely on the vision of others mediated to us in the arts or in the examples of saintly lives or what have you. Even so, insofar as we have eyes to see and ears to hear in the event of Christ's presence in the time we have been given and are given ever anew, the knowledge of the beautiful in its eternal truth shines forth as infinite love. Uh, thank you. Yes, sure. So. Sorry, my voice was getting a bit weak there. Uh, it's an old lung problem. So. Uh, I think yeah. you did exceptionally well, David. Um, while I was listening to you, I was thinking of Hopkins' poem as Kingfishers Catch Fire, Dragonflies Draw Flame, that has that line in it, what I do is me, for that I came. Um, maybe what Marilyn Robinson calls the givenness of things, or somebody that you interacted with once, a gentleman, Talus, called thatness or thatter not just matter, but thatter, all the things that are other than the matter that is, so to speak. I don't know whether that captures anything of it, but the sense in which we live in a world beyond just the physical matter, a world which God has given to us, and a gift of grace to us. And indeed, you are a gift of grace to us. I'm sure you agree with that. Um, I find that my brain goes <laughs> along all sorts of twists and turns, and yet I find it being unified at every single point. I wonder, I've given you a few minutes if you have some questions. We won't take too many tonight because, some, because there'll be a chance to see David outside but we, and he has done an exceptional job being here all day for the students. But um, Tiffany, are you going to start with a question? Can you just stand up and speak, everybody, loudly, please? Tiffany's uh, teaching this at the moment, actually, to our Year 10s. Hello, David. I need to explain a 
When I said beauty is, I mean, that, that's taking me back, okay, that, that is that from the beauty of the infinite, okay, well, that was originally written in 1997, so if my memory is a bit, um, I mean, I, I, there I'm speaking simply of the beautiful in its transcendental aspect, that is, that, that, that though clearly we make judgments and evaluations of the relative beauty or deformity of the things we encounter in this world uh, and can disagree quite violently about them. I mean, there are people out there who think Thomas Kincaid's paintings are, are, are beauty itself, whereas I would flee from them and hide under chairs so as not to have to look at them. Those judgments, like all rational judgments, like judgments of what is true or, is, or, of or what is good or what is desirable are made in light of a prior tacit awareness that we possess, even if we don't want to admit it, of the absolute value that we all chiefly rationally desire. That we're able to act as rational beings, free beings, beings capable of judgment and evaluation, Precisely because we're not machines, because we, are, we have an innate sense of a transcendental horizon of reality that commands our attention and commands our love before we can assent to it by finite acts of judgment or resist it through finite acts of judgment. So I don't mean that it's objective in the sense that, you know, I think that, uh, that uh, Schubert's Winterreise is the greatest work of vocal music of, the, uh, of its period, and you don't, and therefore you should go to hell. Um, I, I mean, sorry, what, 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 but I do mean that, the, that when we disagree about the beautiful, we already have a prior objective awareness of what it is we're talking about, even though we can't reduce it to any kind of formulation. Thank you. Another question. Now, David did say that to the year 10 to the 12 today, in some form. So well, what I told them is if they didn't agree with me about Schubert, they were going to hell. That was, <laughs> I, th I think schoolgirls often need to be told that sort of thing. So, you know, so, yeah. A question at the back. The gentleman at the back. If I could stand up. Oh, there's two. Sorry. I don't mind which order you go. Um, my question is about just trying to understand what you think about the relationship between the beautiful and the useful. It seemed like in the first part of your lecture there was almost an ostentatious rejection of the useful. But then towards the end when you were talking about Christian ideas of beauty, it seemed like the useful seemed to get a bit of a get a few crumbs at least. Um, there was a sense in which uh, the useful could be could be beautiful. Um, that's something Oh, the useful can be beautiful. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I, I didn't mean to suggest that these are opposed realms of values because um, what I was saying at the beginning, uh, as I recall, was that, that 
In its own terms, the beautiful makes an absolute demand upon us that isn't reducible simply to the occasion of its appearance. It need not be useful, all right? That's not, that's not the determination. Uh, the, uh, within the realm of the aesthetic, the, be the beautiful is that which is chiefly desirable to which all other considerations are subordinate, just as within the realm of the moral, you would, you would elevate another aspect of the transcendental horizon of things. But uh, that said, I mean, I believe in the classical view that the true, the good, the beautiful, the one being ultimately all coincide in, in, in the essence of God, you know, to put it in, in and therefore, they're always involved in one another to one degree or another, that, that you can actually confirm this again for yourself because you do experience sometimes moral goodness as movingly beautiful or, or even a, a, an objective truth in its very truthfulness has a beauty to it uh, or the beautiful, when you get something, something of, of its rightness actually has a moral clarity to it. That's why I started with the poem by Rilke, was that the judgment of the beautiful on us is a, is a moral judgment there. We are unfinished, you know. So no, I, I never meant to suggest that, uh, that, the, the, that the utile cannot also be the, the beautiful. I, I, I meant only to say that what we find when we experience the beauty is the sheer absoluteness of the demand it makes on us and how it need not have anything to do with practical use. But yeah, an economics can be beautiful, one that actually feeds the hungry and shelters the homeless and, and, supp and, and supplies the poor with the good things of this world uh, could be ravishingly beautiful. Who knows, because we've never actually seen that. Just speak up, sir. Thank you very much for the talk. Um, I just wanted to ask, uh, you were saying that there is very much the possibility that we don't see the beautiful, perhaps don't appreciate it for what it is. Uh, I was wondering, is there a way to develop the, the ears to hear and the eyes to see? Is there any way that you would suggest to someone how to better appreciate the beautiful? get rich and buy lots of art, you know? No, um, it's a great investment. Um, I, well, I see, the thing is, I do think that, that, that what we experience, we experience, I think, again, there's something about the needlessness of the arts, the just, the, the there-ness. It's not, it's not, for instance, I mentioned that uh, I had, when I was 10, um, seeing a Chardin in the museum up close, not a photograph. Photographs never do the work for you. Right? I was only 10, but for the first time I'd seen this famous gift he had of creating depths and layers of color. I mean, it's believed that he actually painted with his thumbs at times to get what he wanted. The brush couldn't quite get it. Um, and I was overwhelmed. I mean, I was just seized by it. But was it more beautiful than many other things I, well, it was more beautifully accomplished. But in that instant, through his, the genius of his art and through his ability to accomplish it, I, I, I think now, you know, in long retrospect, I, at the age of 10, I wasn't quite this reflective. You know, I'd like to pretend. But I thought, uh, 
I was being given a privileged view of something that was true about all of existence, but that normally we live in forgetfulness of, that we don't see. And in fact, we've trained, we, we, we train ourselves not to be astonished, right? Because that's otherwise we have to get on with the business of life. There are these rare moments when suddenly everything stops for us and just the fortuity of the world suddenly becomes, it is how strange that anything at all exists. And we have that moment of wonder. And it's either like the, the moment that leads to philosophy for Aristotle or Plato or the moment, or something very much like the wonder of a child that we sometimes can remember, but not very well. So how do you cultivate that? I mean, it could be a contemplative discipline. I mean, just right. But I do think it requires a kind of saintliness too, a kind of moral purity of the will. Because the one thing the beautiful demands is that you love it in a, in a way that isn't concupiscent. Uh, it, because it, it, what it demands you love is not something that can be reduced to tangible benefits, not to money, not to power. You may like it also for those reasons. You may be an art collector. That, well, 20 years, as soon as the artist dies, I'm going to realize millions on this thing. You know? um, but that actually, there is a kind of moral purity in the beautiful that, that we're aware of in those moments. And I think you can cultivate, but I, I do think it's, a, it's, a, it's a much a moral uh, as, an, as, a, as an aesthetic tuition. It, you should try to re refine your tastes. I mean, hope, one hopes that people can, you know, tell the difference between a Rembrandt and a Thomas Kincaid, but that's less important in some sense. I mean, you know, just an honest joy in a bright Thomas Kincaid, that might be enough. But if, if, because there's some beauty there too, I hear. There must be because it exists and I believe beauty is a transcendental so everything has to have some beauty in it in order to exist. Damn, he hides it well. But, um, <laughs> but you, know, we don't, you know, just being, having a refined taste isn't, you know, you can be, you know, you can have the taste of Marcel Proust, which was very good, I think and still be a, a rather dismal human being, you know. So uh, I think that, that really to be able to see it in all things and at all times, that, that is a kind of saintliness. That, that and, and, and the point I was making about Christian is, is, is that um, it really is possible to learn to see beauty where you think you shouldn't. I mean, in the ancient world, um, you know, famously, it was Eric Auerbach. I'm sorry to go on about this. I'll be very, I'll try to be. Eric Auerbach who pointed out that nowhere in the literature of antiquity or late antiquity could you have had a scene like the one you have in the Gospels of, of Peter breaking down in tears when he realized he betrayed Christ by, by denying him. Not, not betraying him like Judas, but just denying him. Because Peter's a rustic. And it was just taken for granted that grave, meaningful grief was impossible for something as comical and lowly as an uneducated fisherman. This is the first time in Western literature when the tears of a rustic become seen as an occasion of nobility and grief and, and, and a sadness that can seize the heart of anyone. At that moment, a beauty has been glimpsed that until then was somehow invisible. And I do think that's sort of the Christian contribution to the Western sensibility at its best, that, that's to recognize, that, yeah, 
in the broken and, and the shattered, we see not only the objects of our pity, but, uh, but the radiance of God, the radiance of, of, the, of the beauty of God in them. And again, I think that's a kind of saintliness we have to cultivate to see properly. So one more question. Yes, or two more questions. One, two. Please, sir, you start. Well, the spirit, the spirit traditionally in this is, is, is that light that's making visible at all times who and what the sun is, that the joy, the, uh, the rapture, the, the, in, the, the living sense of that beauty that dwells in you is literally the spirit of God enli uh, enlightening your mind and revealing this broken man as the, infin as the image of the infinite Father's love. Um, it's always a matter of the spirit. I, it's just I was trying to, uh, in fact, in the longer version of that, are there, there is a meditation on the spirit, uh, which is sort of scrupulously not German idealist, but that sometimes sounds a bit like that. But, but that would, yeah, I mean, that's, that, uh, it's always in the sort of what became the classical Trinitarian grammar, that which m makes manifest and brings to fruition the joy of the Father in the Son, and the Son in the Father is the, is the Spirit. Um, that's the life that unites the hidden and the manifest. Uh, the hiddenness of the infinite depths of the Father, the infinite manifestation of those depths in the Son are united in the actual life of the Spirit. You know. uh, One more? Could you explain, David, what that is, first of all, for us all? Uh, the Analogia Antis, I mean, well, it, of course, it recently mentions Bart as it was the great um, dispute. Bart uh, claimed that the Analogia Antis, that is the analogy of being, uh, is the invention of Antichrist and the only significant reason for not being a Catholic. And he said this in reaction to the work of Eric Chavarro, which he had never read which is why it's such a stupid remark. I mean, it has nothing to do with it. Uh, Bart had no idea what Chivara was talking about. He thought that what it meant was that God and creatures are two kinds of being and that there's a, 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 a prior category of being in light of which you can draw analogies between them. God is an infinite being, you're a finite being. God is an omnipotent being, you're not omnipotent. But of course, that's not, that's not what the Analogiantis is. It says rather that so great is the transcendence of God that uh, even being is only an analogical predicate between us. It's not something we have in common with God. It's something that we share from God. It's a gift of God to us that we realize in a mode other than the divine. In God, essence and existence are one and the same thing. In us, they're a dynamic synthesis, always becoming, right? And this is how, in our, even in our infinite distance from God, we're immediately, infinitely related to God. It's just, uh, it's just Augustine, right? God, interior, intimo meo, nearer to me than my inmost, 
and yet superior summum, uh, higher than my, my utmost. Well, I think that, that that's the structure of all the transcendentals, right? I mean, the analogiantis is just, you could say the same, there it's being, analogia uh, antis. It could be an analogia pulchritudinis, you know, an analogy of beauty, uh, and uh, uh, it, it's uh, uh, analogia boni, uh, analogy of the good. Um, it, it's, it's all the same structure, that is that there, there's the infinite reality in God which is simple and, and the fullness of the actuality of that truth. And then there's our participation in it which is an infinite journey from nothingness into that infinity. Um, uh, a dynamic, well, he calls it a, a Spannungseintheit, uh, that is Chivara, or uh, he, he made up all these wonderful, cumbersome German terms for it. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I would say it's the same structure, uh, the, the, uh, the analogy of being, the analogy of beauty. Ladies and gentlemen, it's very rare for us to have somebody who contains so much of the history of um, the Christian faith and of Western literature within his own mind such that he can talk about it so freely and link it together. So David, it's a tremendous gift that you've brought not only tonight but to our students today. Do you want to add? No, I just wanted to tap that, the microphone again. <laughs> and he's a very, very naughty boy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're very grateful for you coming here tonight, David. Thank if you, you want to hear more, um, today is sponsored by PLC Sydney. Friday night and Saturday is sponsored by Gospel Conversations. You can go on the website and um, I think there is still room, certainly because we've now moved it to this hall. And so I think there will be room on Saturday if you wish to come and hear. The, talk. the discussions on Saturday are about the nature of the mind. They're particularly relevant to us as an educational institution because of the advent of AI where we're trying to make humanity in the image of computers rather than in the image of God. And so um, that's a very important topic for us as we seek to maintain the image of God in all of our students and staff. So would you join with me in thanking David for a wonderful uh, conversation with Thank you.